Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast, the podcast about Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult. My name is Gabrielle Hawkowen. And I'm Sadie Carpenter. And we're here. Um, and I just wanted to start this episode off with a story. A little background info. Sadie and I were co-workers who eventually became friends because we were both musicians. And, you know, we get to talking about music. We were both songwriters. So naturally, we were like, you know, let's try to write together. Sadie, correct me if I'm misremembering this. You came over to my house. You wanted to work on some songs. Or, and I think that you were playing something that you had written. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. You were trying to figure out exactly what you wanted to do with it. And you, were, you wanted my help of fleshing out an idea or something. And you were sitting at the piano. I had my guitar. You're sitting at the piano. And we were playing with some lyrical ideas. All of a sudden, your hands started, I guess, shaking a little bit. You looked a little bit agitated. You seemed a bit short of breath. Yeah. And that happened because uh, I was having trouble writing the chorus for something that I had written the verse for. And you suggested yeah. that I go in the chorus and just kind of repeat the same phrase a couple times. So what you told me was that in your church, in your upbringing, that if a song had repeated lyric, that means that the song is rock and roll. And rock and roll is of the devil. So I was strongly warned against rock music in church my whole life. If I told you that somebody preached against something, would you know what that meant? I, I would assume that it would just be them standing on the pulpit and saying, this is evil, that's evil. That's accurate. In the IFB church, uh, some sermons are about more standard parts of the Christian life, like um, salvation or the Bible or being a good person, whatever. But a, a large part of sermons are also about specific sins and what makes them bad 
and why not to do them. A lot of these sins, you kind of get like a, a standard list and you're really expected to know why these things are not acceptable for an independent fundamental Baptist. And you're supposed to be able to defend those beliefs to other people. Hmm. And among those really hot topics that get preached on a lot was rock and roll and how it corrupts young people and convinces them to do sinful things. I guess sex, drugs, and rock and roll, they all go together. Like Exactly. So actually, at the time I attended Hiles Anderson College, students at that college were not allowed to have earbuds at all. No earbuds? <laughs> no, because listening to bad music was such a concern that they felt like if we had earbuds, we'd be able to, to play inappropriate music. What what would you do when you went to the gym? Like, well, you would you would play music on your phone speaker, I guess. But like Southern gospel, I man, mean, I don't know. I didn't go to the gym in college. I had too much other things to do. That's a cardinal sin. <laughs> playing playing music out loud on your phone in the public place. No, listening to rock yeah. music is a cardinal sin. <laughs> really? Okay, so let's get into that. Like, I, I checked my rule book just for the sake of accuracy. I checked my rule book that it was not a written rule. It was an unwritten rule. I just want to be above board with everything I claim about uh, specific institutions within the IFB. So I remember I had some like Christian rock and Disney songs on my phone. Scandalous. It really was. I remember listening to Part of Your World from The Little Mermaid a lot. It really kind of summed up how I felt. That's the thing that I think is funny is that they're like, this is forbidden. Like, you can't have earbuds. You might listen to something <laughs> devilish and you're listening to like Christian rock and like. Yeah, I was listening to Casting Crowns. I was listening to like Nat King Cole and uh, Dean Martin. And I was listening to The Little Mermaid. <laughs> Dean Martin. I mean, you want to talk about a man who led a sinful life. Mm. Uh, true that. Well, the IFB defines rock and roll a lot more broadly than most people. So depending on who's talking, they could be talking about anything from Motley Crue to actual heavy metal to Madonna or Ariana Grande. You're, you got to make that distinction as a, as a true metalhead. Yes, I absolutely do. That Motley Crue is hair metal. Listen, I love Motley Crue, but I'm not going to sit here and call them actual metal. <laughs> I know my limits. But no, rock and roll is any popular music that has a two and four drum beat. So emphasis on the, the second and the fourth beat in a standard four four measure. All the people are, are in your church are clapping on the one and three. You know, when there's yes. a song, they're <laughs> clapping on the one and three. Well, if clapping is allowed, clapping is allowed for... If <laughs> clapping is allowed. <laughs> so in, in some churches, it's allowed for some songs. In the particular like group of churches I grew up in, clapping was allowed if you were in a teen service, if you were on a bus while singing the song, or if you were singing a song that wasn't in the hymnal. So if you were singing like I'll Fly Away or Swing Low Sweet Chariot or something, it was allowed. But songs that were in the hymnal, it wasn't. So wait, you're singing Swing Low Sweet Chariot, but you're clapping on the one and three. That sounds yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> you're going to service. You're like, oh, we're going to go to fun church today. They let us <laughs> clap. Like, <laughs> yeah. They let us clap in the sermon. That was a oof. That that was a doozy right there. Like, so on top of all the other things that I had to learn coming out of that environment, I also had to learn how to clap properly. Wow. My life is so hard. <laughs> I mean, that's something that is difficult. You got to learn that later in life. 
Yeah. Might not come naturally. Okay. But like. Well, and you've heard me complain writing music about, I don't know what meter this is in, or I don't know how to do that. And you've seen me get really frustrated with meter and rhythm. Well, when you think about it, like say if rock and roll is specifically defined as something that's on like the, the two and four, then does that mean that you can listen to something like really polyrhythmic? So you could listen to some Meshuga if you wanted, or you could listen to like some periphery if you wanted. <laughs> you know, I think they it's more likely that they just didn't know that that kind of music existed. On the surface, it would probably seem like fundamentalism's problems with rock and roll are the same as any strict movie parent uh, or the guy from the beginning of the We're Not Gonna Take It music video or any old-fashioned preacher that you might have ever heard. You know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's like the preacher dad in in the movie Footloose. Yeah, like it makes you want to dance. It promotes risky behavior. It makes you rebellious (laughs) and proud. So if you ask somebody from the IFB, what's your problem with rock music? That would probably be the first answer that you would get. Oh, it talks about inappropriate things. Uh, It promotes rebellion and Lucifer the devil was rebellious and it's a really big sin. Well, you're not wrong. It's true. So if you push the issue, you'd get to uh, a more universal Baptist argument against rock music that the the two and the four drum beat is just too sensual, too sexual, and it's too much of a temptation for any good Christian. And it all comes down to that that style of drum beat or that style of rhythm. So there was a really popular sermon I wanted to tell you about uh, that would get preached by a certain preacher to teenagers. A lot of times it would come up at youth conferences and things. Uh, The sermon was popular because he would play us clips of, you know, regular worldly music and then uh, explain to us what was so wrong or sinful about them. Specifically, what were the songs that he would play? Oh, goodness. I know there was a Casting Crown song in there. Who's Casting Crowns? Oh, gosh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Casting Crowns is, is one of the best-known Christian rock bands. They have problems with even Christian rock? Yeah, it's still got that same drum beat that's the problem. So they're finding stuff that they find objectionable, but they're not going to give you anything that would be like expose you to any like bad material. So it's not like they're going to be like, here, listen to some Black Sabbath, listen to some I- Ozzy. So I don't remember exactly what was all... I mean, I know I heard Ozzy preached against from the pulpit um, a lot growing up. Uh, I don't know exactly what else was in that particular sermon. I do know that the song, um, a couple songs from Phantom of the Opera were in there because the lyrics are supposedly satanic. Like, let your mind surrender to its darkest dreams, stuff like that. You heard it here first. (laughs) Andrew Lloyd Webber is summoning the devil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so, you know, I really liked that sermon because I got to listen to different music. That's so funny that it had like the exact opposite. A lot of things had the opposite effect on me. <laughs> so those like first and second layers of why rock music is wrong are the most commonly talked about, that it promotes the wrong things and that it's a sexual drumbeat, whatever that's supposed to mean. When you really drill down, though, to why fundamentalists believe that, you start to uncover the not-so-subtle racism of the independent Baptist movement. The truth is that the core of the IFB's prohibition of pop or rock music is a belief that sensual two and four drum beats originate from Africa, and that's a problem. Here we go. 
Yeah, so you're going to buckle up for this one. This is going to get a little bit intense. Yeah, this is like a long walk for a short drink of water here. You know, uh, you should get used to that. That's going to be a recurring theme. I'll let (laughs) you know now. (laughs) So, uh, are you familiar with the story of Noah's flood? I am. Um, I think most people are. So the, you know, all the people of the earth were sinful. God told Noah and his three sons and Noah's wife and the son's wives. So eight people total to put uh, two of each animal on the ark. And then a, a giant rain fell and the whole earth was flooded and all the bad people died. And Noah and his family were going to repopulate the earth. So I'm looking at a a scripture passage that comes right after the flood. So just very shortly after they get off the ark into the new world and they're ready to to start this new world. And we're in Genesis right now. Genesis, what's the verse? Genesis 9, 18 through 27. And I'm going to go ahead and read from the King James Version. Okay, I'm following along in my version, which is the the new JPS Tanakh, which is the generally most used Jewish version? Yeah, uh, chapter 9, verse 18 is where I'm starting. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be a husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backwards and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine, and he knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. So that passage talks about what people would call the curse of Ham. How does the curse of Ham relate to Africa? So the commonly held idea, and this is the this is a scriptural passage that was used to justify slavery in early America. And this is a passage that has been used to justify specifically race, racism against people of African descent for hundreds, if not thousands of years. This is the key that that rests on. The idea is that Shem became the ancestor. So Noah had those three sons. The idea is that Shem became the ancestor of all Jews and all Arabs through Abraham. Uh, Some groups would believe that he is the ancestor of all Asian people as well. That's debated. Japheth became the father of all Indo-European people. Uh, and possibly all Asian people as well. Again, it's debated. And Ham's descendants moved to Africa, and he became the ancestor of all African people. And when Noah puts that curse on Ham, he says, a servant of servants, will he be unto his brethren? So people who believe that that curse was... So if, if you believe that that curse was perpetual on all descendants of Ham... And if you believe that Ham's descendants are people from Africa, you can use that information to justify racist behavior or even owning slaves as long as they're descended from Ham. This was a passage that was, in fact, used by 
people in the South, slave owners and anti-abolitionists mm-hmm. and whatnot, to justify the existence of the institution of slavery. Yes, this is the passage. It's not, I wouldn't even say it's one of several. This is the one. Uh, If you look up uh, newspapers or sermons that were printed shortly before the American Civil War, this you will see this exact passage used by any pastor who's trying to justify slavery. There there are a couple holes in this idea, in my opinion. (laughs) Obviously. Yes. However, I would like to point out just one from the perspective of somebody who believes the Bible is the Word of God and believes that Ham was cursed and believes that people from Africa are descendants of Ham. Even if you believe all of those things, scriptural curses typically continue. Typically, the worst curse that's given in scripture goes to the third or the fourth generation. Um, There may be one in there that's like to the fifth generation. Logic, this is the exact same scripture passage that's used to justify slavery in early America. And now that we all know that slavery is not acceptable and not right— um, that same scripture is still being used to promote much more subtle racism in the IFB movement. You know what this whole thing reminds me of? What's that? I don't. So I don't know. I guess they probably didn't have you do square dancing when you were in school. But no, I heard that other people did that in school, uh, but we were not allowed to touch the opposite gender in school. Or any place else for that matter. So, no, we didn't do it. Um, when I was growing up, you know, this was elementary school all through, um, all the way through uh, gym class in high school. We would have a unit where we did square dancing. It was part of the curriculum. Square dancing was part of the curriculum. And I didn't find out why until actually pretty recently. I found out that it was because Henry Ford of the Ford Motor Company, Henry Ford was so afraid of the influence of jazz music on young people that he tried to quite successfully was able to get square dancing as part of the educational, like the physical education of young people and like very effectively promoted it all the way throughout the country. That's crazy. Yeah. So he promoted square dancing to keep people away from jazz. Yeah, because he was like jazz music. That's black people are, are doing jazz music. And it's so cool that, uh, that, it's going to make, I don't know, it's it's going to influence people. <laughs> that was actually a really good example of how, you know, these racist ideologies, it, it used to be that they would be much more blatant. But now you have to do it below the surface. Right. As progress has gone on, they, they've gotten more and more underground. And just because it's more subtle doesn't mean it's less racist. Yeah, because it just means that it's easier to hide it. And you can just say, oh, I don't. I don't think that's right. And then people will know what you mean, but you don't have to say it out loud. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the whole idea of the curse of Ham and anybody who is of African descent being cursed was revived in IFB circles in the early days of the Independent Fundamental Baptist movement. So what year about is this? like? I can't give you an exact year. We'll have to wait and see if my dad wants to come on the podcast to give us an exact year of when it started. Uh, But uh, Henry Morris and John R. Rice, the two people I want to talk about, um, late 1950s is when they were publishing these works. So this is like early in the era of like the civil rights movement. Yes. So evangelist John R. Rice wrote an anti-desegregation book, uh, the title of which I won't read on air. 
and it is just full of popular 1960s racist misinformation. And it quite literally and quite blatantly existed to justify white Christian racism. It was, uh, I, I read quite a bit of it online and it was truly disturbing. And then also uh, it was it was propagated by Henry Morris, who is considered the father of young earth creationism. Uh, he is a, a person that made, is referred to as having started the creationist renaissance. So when believing that the world was created by God and did not evolve, when that really rose to popularity among evangelicals in the in 1950s, 1960s, it became more of a more of a living issue than this is just what we believe. It became something up for debate. Henry Morris was the person doing that debating. So he brought that to like the forefront. of Yes. And I tried to pick a quote from his book to read, but there is honestly just too much and it's too awful. Um, so I, I linked you an article that's got uh, quite a few quotes from him. Yeah. And we'll have the link to that in the show notes. In fundamentalist circles, the, the effects of the the idea of the curse of ham, uh, they get you to phrases like "nothing good ever came out of Africa," and these are just things that you grow up hear pe- hearing people say, so you believe it. Yeah, and I did want to to quickly make make the point that um, while my dad was my pastor, not all of this or even most of this was coming from him. Uh, and I do want to be clear that everyone in my family has said things that we didn't know were racist and we have figured it out and quit doing that. And your family is all out of the cult at this point. Yes. We've all gone, um, you know, slightly different directions. We've spread around a little bit, uh, but we are all still Christian and none of us are still IFB. So, you know, I grew up hearing stories when people would preach about rock music. I'd hear these stories about like a missionary who went to Africa where the you know, chief, and it's always the chief in these stories because they're incapable of understanding other people's cultures <laughs> or having any nuance in stories. Right. And the chief, they're like, yeah, that sounds accurate. Yeah, the chief. Sure, they have chiefs over there. But he was shocked to hear in the story the, the missionary's children playing American rock music. And the chief tells the missionary, those are the drum beats that the tribe uses to summon the most powerful demons. What? <laughs> yeah. So that was a no. story. That was what I was told about why we don't listen to <laughs> rock and roll. Did they watch the music video for Thriller and they're like, "Yeah, that's <laughs> like that's what happens in real life." Let's. <laughs> I mean, I think so. Yeah. People are coming back from the dead and they're dancing and stuff. I mean, that would explain the the hatred of dancing as well, too. I mean, and then they're like, yeah, here it is again. Backstreet Boys. Backstreet's back. You know, they play this music, they dance, and then everybody's turning into like mummies and, and zombies <laughs> and demons. Yeah. Yeah. Zomb- <laughs> yeah. Vampires. Uh, it's been woven in, you know, the idea of being against rock music and this idea of the curse of ham. It's all been put together in this little package where... Everybody from Africa is a devil worshiper, and everybody in Africa is familiar with demons and how to summon them, which is is just really, like I said, it's no nuance that's really silly. And you ask, well, why is rock and roll bad? You get these two layers of very well-hidden racism, but when you drill all the way down, you get to this deep racist core 
and you really start to expose the racism within the IFB. Yeah, it, I don't know. To me, it feels kind of like when you talk to people and they're like, I don't like rap, but I respect Eminem. And I'm like, okay. Oh, goodness. I, yeah. I, <laughs> Go listen to NWA. I know NWA what you're locks. trying to. Come on. <laughs> I did eventually realize that the foundation of the IFB's belief against rock music is a racist foundation. But it it wasn't that. And it wasn't even the fact that my school curriculum showed segregated schools and barely mentioned civil rights. And it wasn't the demonization of the Reverend Martin Luther King. It wasn't any of those things that really opened my eyes first. The first thing that started to make me realize the inherent racism in the IFB was actually their treatment of missionary work. I think that missionary work can absolutely come from good intentions, but missionary work that seeks to impose Western culture or a way of dress on those that it ministers to is really just colonialism, plain and simple. You know, if you're going to on a mission, you know, somebody that's close to me is going on a mission to help uh, orphan girls in uh, another country. You know, they're going to um, help them not get pulled into sex work against their will, uh, help them get to 18 and find jobs and be safe from involuntary sex work. Well, that is, that's good work. Right. That's great work. And that's important. Yeah. If you're going on a missions trip to provide medical care, you know, if you went to help deal with the Ebola epidemic or, or even coronavirus in another country, and you're going as a, as a doctor who's also a Christian who sees it as their Christian duty to help others, that's good work. But if you're going to, to try to impose not just your spiritual beliefs, but also your ideas of what's, you know, what's appropriate dress or what's appropriate music on somebody else and erase their culture and replace it with a, a kind of hybrid of whatever their culture is and American culture, that's a problem. And not even American culture, like IFB American culture, which is like... And in the IFB, signs of a successful church on the mission field would include um, the members of that church adopting an American clothing style and the dress code of IFB churches, bringing large numbers of people to church, and singing American hymns in English. Uh, In fact, missionaries that go to focus on medical needs or build houses uh, or whatever are made fun of from the pulpit by some IFB pastors because they've sold out to what the world thinks they should be doing on the mission field. Everyone who's not one of us is going to hell, and it's our job to try and save them from that. Well, yeah, the foundation of IFB missions work does come from what they believe about salvation. Specifically, the key is that they believe that to be saved, someone has to go through a certain logical chain of events. You have to accept that you're a sinner. You have to understand that Christ's death on the cross atoned for that sin. And then you have to ask or request to receive salvation. So they would believe that without all of those parts in the proper order, you can't go to heaven. The general understanding is you can go through those steps with personal Bible study, but usually you would need someone to explain these steps to salvation to you. 
And you would always need a Bible to be present for you to to read the verses out of that would lead you to go through those steps. And so that's where the missionaries come in. Right. And and this is also why they do door-to-door witnessing. You know, they go and knock on people's doors here in America. Oh my God. I've had to, uh, I'll tell you something, um, <laughs> is that if you're Jewish, you'll know what I'm talking about, but there's a thing called a mezuzah. Um, it's like a, it's it's got like a little scroll and some, yeah, but if you're Jewish, then it's something that you like hang on your doorpost. You put on your doorpost. I had to take mine down from outside of my doorpost because I kept getting people coming over trying to convert me. So I'm because they were targeting you. Oh yeah. Oh no, my if goodness. You put, if you put one up and they're like, Oh, a Jew lives here. Let's go get him. Like let's find him and, and bring him to Jesus. And oh, it, it got goodness. so annoying. Like, you know, I always kind of wondered. I had I had Mormons, I had Jehovah's Witnesses, I had various other people like So I didn't I wouldn't have known the word for that. What do you say the the term for that is? It's a mezuzah. Mezuzah? Mezuzah. Yeah. Mezuzah, so, yeah. <laughs> so I wouldn't have known the word for that if you hadn't told me, but I do you know, vaguely kind of know what that is. No, I always wondered why you didn't have that on your door. And I guess now I just found out. It's no, like it became, it became like a, they'd come like twice a week and I just had to tell them to like. Yeah. I, I don't, I do not get the impression that you are interested in changing religions. I'm, I'm really not. I really Please don't, don't get that to. vibe. No. <laughs> oh man. I was doing this whole podcast to try to convert you. It's all been a trick. I guess we better carry on anyway, because there's more people out there. Okay. I'll try to convert somebody else or not. (laughs) So IFB people generally believe that in America, anyone would have had a fair opportunity at some point to listen to the gospel. If you blow it off or if you slam the door in somebody's face, then that's on you. So apparently you've had your chance. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I guess I'm going to hell. Like. I guess you are. Sorry. Bummer. (laughs) But I mean, under the IFB faith, so am I. So I used to get really upset when I was out witnessing and somebody was rude to me or blew me off or slammed the door or whatever. And it wasn't really that I was upset that somebody was rude to me. It was because I truly believed that they had just sealed their fate to an eternal hell. And that concept is a is a real problem for people who live in countries where they wouldn't have a reasonable opportunity to get told about Jesus at some point. If somebody lives in a country where Jesus wouldn't just come up in everyday conversation, then they, in the IFB you know, way of thinking of things, that person can't go to heaven because there is no one there to show them. So mission work becomes life or death important. It's a responsibility that you have to the world. Yeah, and it's a very heavy responsibility, especially when you're starting, you know, you're being presented with that as a very young child. It really weighs on you. And a lot of children commit their life to be missionaries very, very young, even as young as seven or eight years old. So, how old were you when you were starting to try to reach out to people? I guess to, I guess you. Oh, when I first started to witness to people. So I was taught how to go through the specific verses in the New Testament and how to tell people about Jesus. I was taught how to do that when I was about five. When I was five, I was playing with trucks. (laughs) When I was five, I was playing with Bibles. I was setting all, I would put all my dolls and stuffed animals in a row in front of me on the bed and practice going through uh, what they call the plan of salvation. 
Wow. Yeah. And then I, I witnessed to my first person when I was six. It was my, my childhood elementary best friend. Uh, she had been feeling some doubts about whether or not she was going to heaven. So I went through that with her and got her to pray the prayer and ask Jesus to take her to heaven when I was six or maybe just turned seven. I think I was six. But imagine being six years old and wondering whether or not you're going to go to heaven. Not even, oh, like, what am I going to do when I grow up? What am I, what's going to happen to me after I die? Well, the question to what am I going to do when I grow up was easy. It was, I'm going to be a pastor's wife, an assistant pastor's wife, a missionary, or a Christian school teacher. So they just take that all out of the equation so you don't even have to worry about it. You can... Right. Like, those are my choices. I can choose one. You got one of four. Like, you know... Well, you have free will. You can choose any of those four pre-approved choices. So I was... uh, And then I was about... I was about seven or eight the first time I knocked on somebody's door and tried to evangelize to them. Were you by yourself or were you? Um, sometimes I was with another kid, like with a, like a group of us from the school would go and we would knock every door on a certain street. Uh, so sometimes I was with, with another child or sometimes I was out with, I would be out with my parents and then generally my parents would talk and I wouldn't. So like, wait, like where were you living at this time? Uh, the first time I remember knocking on somebody's door by myself and trying to witness to them, I was living in Iowa. And you were how old? Seven. Yeah. And then by the time, Lord. by the time you're like 12 or 13, you're expected to be able to do that. Like I said, I was an early reader and I had an easy time memorizing things as a child, just the way my brain is. Were they all like concerned about your safety? Well, I got lost one time. But they weren't afraid that somebody was going to like snatch you off the street or something bad was going to happen to you? Not really in Iowa. No. Like, okay. So one time I'll, I'll, tell it shortly. So one time uh, in Iowa, I went out with a school group and I was with that same best friend I was talking about earlier, actually. And we were supposed to go knock all the doors on this one particular street. And there was like a teacher and a bunch of girls from my school. So me and my best friend went together to knock on this door. And we knocked on this sweet, adorable old lady's door. And she said she was Methodist. And I really, really tried to... Well, I really, really tried to talk her into getting saved and becoming Baptist. It didn't work (laughs) very well. And by the time I got done haranguing this poor old lady. And you were 12 or 13. You're like a. a, No, I was seven. You were seven. I was seven. And by the time I finished bothering this, this poor, very sweet old lady, all the other girls had gone back to the school and they had forgotten about me and my best friend. And it's, you know, it's Iowa and it's not summer. So it's getting dark early in the day and it's, you know, maybe 4 or 5 p.m., but it's already dark and it's rainy and we didn't know how to get back to school. They didn't have you count off on the bus? Oh, we walked, we had walked over from the school, but I didn't, I couldn't remember how to get back to the school and we were terrified. So I remember we went and we like knelt down behind the bush and we prayed that Jesus would help us get back to the school. And what we ended up doing is we went back to the old lady's door since she had been so nice to us. And we knocked on the door and explained to her that we were lost and she walked us back to the school. And that was true Christian charity. That from her. Yeah, from her. From her, not the the unsaved uh, devilish Methodist. Yeah. 
And uh, that was, it was really sweet of her. I still, I'm, I'm sure she's probably passed away by now, but. And those Methodists are definitely going to hell for this then. (laughs) (laughs) No, I do. I still appreciate her. I know. I don't remember her name, barely remember what she looked like, but still just one of the nicest things anybody's ever done for me. Well, you know, she understood that she had a responsibility to. Yeah, exactly. Wow. That's. So that's my, that's my evangelism story when I was a little kid. But anyway, you know, the, the IFB church believes that you have to go through those certain steps to be saved to the point that they would send a seven-year-old child out. Uh, I would also like to point out my parents weren't responsible for that one. That was the teacher who left me. Teacher <laughs> but, of the year right there. But this is a real problem for people who live in countries where they wouldn't have a reasonable opportunity for somebody to walk up to them and talk to them about Jesus. So you have so people are just like oh let's go to I don't know Cambodia or right and it's always like the exotic countries you know and I apologize for even using that term but that's how it would be said that's how it was portrayed is oh we're going to some exotic place and we're going to to civilize the the savages right there's never a missionary to Great Britain <laughs> language straight out of Pocahontas there's well yes exactly that's exactly how it was portrayed. Actually, the most accurate portrayal of of people who live in Africa. Have you seen the Book of Mormon? No, I haven't. I've heard it's quite good. For it, it's fantastic. For anybody who has seen the Book of Mormon, all people from Africa are portrayed like the chief in the Book of Mormon. <laughs> You'll understand when you when you see it eventually. And, and you hear, you know, you hear these like these crazy stories. There was a there was one really popular story about a missionary to Africa whose son was captured by the local tribal chief. And I told you, it's always the chief in these stories because they don't take the time to actually study someone else's culture because they just want to go there and erase it. So in this particular story, the uh, missionary's son was captured by the local tribal chief and his hands and feet were cut off one at a time and sent back to the father. And that story was told as an example of like how hard the mission field is. And this might happen if you become a missionary. So it's dangerous, but it's also a little bit sexy. Yeah. But also it was told as as an example of like, this is what you have to be willing to give up in order to serve God. I think that that's kind of unreasonable. You know, I, I like to think that I do good things and serve God in my regular life. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong and, being in the IFB is the only way to do it, but that's not what I believe. So if somebody was never reached by a missionary, the idea was that they would almost certainly go to hell, even if they never had the opportunity to hear about Jesus and get saved. And that was something that really disturbed me as a child. I was like obsessed with worry. I would lie awake at night and cry because I was thinking of all the people in the faraway places that I would never go to that were dying and going to hell, like right this minute. And how could God be so unmerciful to allow someone who had never had a chance to be sent to this place of eternal darkness? And it really started to hit me, I guess, when I was around 12. I was I was old enough to understand if all of this is true— then there are people going to hell because no missionary is there. And I asked a lot of questions because it just seems so unfair. And the answer that I got was, well, maybe if someone rejects the God of their culture and they pray, even if they don't know who God is or know about Jesus, 
then maybe God will send them a missionary and show them how to get to heaven. Those told stories about remote villagers who prayed for 50 years and God kept them alive long enough for a missionary to come. And that still just didn't sit right with me. And it didn't feel right the way that we othered other people's cultures, the way that we appropriated and erased other people's cultures. I didn't know those words. <laughs> and so there's basically two ways that you can go from this. You can either say, okay, well, now it's my duty to be a missionary and go all over the world and try to convert people. And that's what you're supposed, that's the reaction you're supposed to have. Yeah. Or you can say, wait a minute, this is all just a bunch of nonsense. Yeah. And I didn't know what colonialism was. I didn't know what othering or fetishizing or erasing or appropriating culture was. I didn't know any of those words. But I knew in my heart that something just felt icky. I just knew this can't be right. This can't be right. So I, you know, what if, well, what if, you know, the person who is supposed to be that missionary didn't answer God's call and they never went? Well, then I was told that it's that person's fault for not going as a missionary. The people that they didn't reach still go to hell. But does the missionary go to hell for not? No, they go to heaven because they were saved. They just live with a lot of shame and guilt in heaven forever. Well, the people they didn't reach are in hell. That doesn't sound like heaven to me. But. That's that is that started to sink in for me. I just couldn't let it go, and I kept kind of getting in trouble because I would ask this question over and over and over again. Nothing bad ever happened to me because of that, but people would just blow me off eventually. <laughs> it was the first time that I ever had something big enough to make me question what I'd been taught my whole life. It was the first time that the stakes were high enough to give me the bravery to actually question and actually try to break something down. How did this racism manifest itself in the daily life? It's a little hard to quantify for me because all of the things that I saw were presented to me as this is normal. But one particular incident that really stuck out to me, uh, I was in I was in a small Christian school, so you'd think of it more like a one-room schoolhouse than a traditional school with different grades and classes and things. Where was this? Where were you living? So this is in the St. Louis area by this time. So students were required to attend church somewhere to go to my school, but it didn't have to be our church. And because of the area I lived in, that meant that I had classmates that were not white. And uh, one of those people was my really good friend, and I'm going to call him Daniel. When I was in high school, Daniel and I were really close, but we never dated or went out or anything. But we always got questioned. People started asking us, are you dating Daniel? Do you have a crush on Daniel? Uh, you know, do you think Daniel has a crush on you? Like teachers and adults in the church would ask us stuff like that. Really just, I mean, if it's your friends, you know. No, it was adults, like getting all up in our business. And I eventually figured out that the reason we got questioned, people started to let it slip that it's because Daniel's black. And people would start to say these little things like, well, you know, you shouldn't uh, you shouldn't even consider dating Daniel because if you did, your cultures would be too different and you wouldn't be happy together. Did he go? So, did he go to the same church as you? No, he went to a different church down the road, but he went to my school, my Christian school. He's still a Christian. Yeah, actually, he's an ordained minister now in his like his home church, which is a missionary Baptist church. And uh, I personally think he's doing great. And so they're just like the the culture's different. Yeah, it's a little bit of a of a different world. And I don't know. Maybe people didn't question him the way they did me. I, I don't know what, I've never asked him. I don't know what his experience was. 
But they they would use that sort of dog whistle as saying, oh, the culture is different. The culture, the culture is, different. is different. If you had children, they'd be confused. You know, if you grew up and married Daniel, then uh, your children would be confused or your children wouldn't know what culture to align with. This this continued to manifest itself when you were at uh, Hiles Anderson College, uh, you told me earlier. Yeah. I believe that Hiles Anderson at one point had a, a rule against interracial dating on the official rule book. Uh, I double checked my copy because, like I said, I do want to be accurate about what was actually written and what was an unwritten rule. Uh, my 2012 2013 copy of the yearbook of the uh, sorry the rule book does not specifically prohibit interracial dating older copies did as far as i'm aware to the best of my knowledge in older you know, or in in previous years at Hiles Anderson if you wanted to date somebody who is a different race than you you would have to get written permission from the girl's father that's a whole different level of misogyny than we're going to... It's misogyny and racism all tied up into one. It's it's yeah. just great. Two great tastes that taste great together. Uh, I know. <laughs> you know, I had always, I had for years, had this problem with the way that we viewed mission work and the way that we talked about people from other cultures um, and the way that we just erased everybody else's religions and said that even if someone has no chance to ever learn about Jesus, then they're going to hell. That just burned in me for years. And then as I grew up and I started to be asked about, well, you know, me and Daniel and, and hear these casual, like very casually racist phrases about he and I and our friendship, pieces started to fall together for me. And I started to see the casual racism around me differently. Even before, like years before, I was officially on my way out of the cult I was noticing phrases and noticing stories and realizing that this isn't just politically incorrect. This is racist. So how old were you, would you say, when you first started to come to this realization? Uh, I would say late high school, 16, 17, 18. I started, I, I stopped thinking about it as it's, it's, oh, it's just not PC. And I started thinking about it as, oh, this might be racist. And then I would notice something else and, oh, that is probably racist. And then a year later, it's, oh, this is racist. And I've got to quit it. You notice not only that this is going around, uh, going on around you, but that it's going on within you. In my head. It's not like I grew up, you know, with my, you know, parents being in the KKK or something. None of it was was blatant, or at least not to me. None of it was, oh, we don't like people who aren't the same race as us. It was all of this kind of story, yeah, stories that stuck in my head, or she's pretty for a black girl. Mm. Phrases like that, that are obviously, that's racist, patronizing. You shouldn't say that now, yeah. Terrible. And I only say it on the podcast for sake of example, uh, you know, I was, things started clicking. And once things started clicking, things started clicking real fast. And all of a sudden, oh, that's not a compliment. That's racist. That's patronizing. That's not okay. So common sense and empathy, once it clicked, once I started to realize one thing, <laughs> it was a snowball effect. And common sense and empathy took care of a lot of the surface level things. Just as soon as I became aware of them, I started to work to undo that and to, you know, change my own mind, change my heart and apologize where apologies were due and move on and not be that way. Uh, 
And then I got to start the deeper work. Yeah. So like, how old were you, would you say, would when you first got called out for saying something racist? It was probably either shortly before or shortly after I moved to Portland. Because in those years between when I left Hiles Anderson and when I moved here, I was actively working on the surface level stuff. You know, I was actively working on, you know, these stories that I had been told and phrases that I had heard and not liking rock music because of racist reasons. And you're just trying to unpack all of that. Right. So all all of the stuff that I already knew about without being more educated, without learning about the civil rights movement in depth, without learning the terms and phrases that we learn that we use to talk about 21st century racism. I hadn't gotten to that point of learning yet. And I was I was really busy weeding out the stuff I already knew was messed up and had to go. And during that time, I would sometimes I would say something and uh, I would hear, yo, Sadie, that was racist. And I would say, no, it wasn't, because that's the first thing that you do when you're confronted with something like that. You get defensive. Right. If somebody calls you out for something, that's a that's a, a guards up moment. Like, no, you're- it wasn't. And then I had to learn to bite my tongue. And if somebody says, yo, Sadie, that was racist. Don't say that. Take a deep breath and think, yo, Sadie, was that racist? Hey, do you want to think about that? Maybe do you want to consider? Yeah. Do you want to unpack what it is that you're, I I know I've experienced both sides of this because um, as, as a Jewish person, I have encountered my fair share of casual anti-Semitism, but also as somebody who is white or white passing. I don't know. There's a whole debate about whether Jewish people are white or not, but I really don't want to get into that. Um, I have definitely like had my fair share of times where I've said something, you know, that was either racist or sexist or something like that. And the first time somebody says that to you, the first time someone says that to you, you put your hands up and you're like, or put your hands up metaphorically and you're like, no, I'm not. That's not me. That that doesn't exist in here. Yeah. You just immediately get defensive and that's just the natural reaction and that you've got to learn to overcome. That's all it is. Like if if I were to ask you, what is the qualities of, of uh, somebody who is a bad person? Like the first thing that would pop out of your head, the first thing that you or I would say would be like, I don't know, they're probably racist. Yep. And so being not racist is something that we see is like central to the idea of being a good person. And nobody likes to be a novice at anything. That's true. Especially something that hits at the core of what it means to be not a trash person. Yeah, to be a morally upstanding person. Yeah. So basically, if you're saying that thing that you said was racist, that immediately is like, Automatically, that mean, that is not just a challenge to what you said, but it's a challenge to your whole identity. Yeah, to who you are. You know, I almost got in a Facebook fight the other day about this sort of thing. Because uh, so someone had posted, hey, I am a white person. I want to learn more about being anti-racist. I want some more education material. Can people... Can people provide me kind of some of your story of how how you've worked on this in your own life? And can you provide me some links of reading material that I can learn more about this issue and hopefully become a better person? That's a perfectly reasonable thing to post. Yeah, uh, especially in a group that's like specifically for asking for help from others. Very appropriate thing to post, in my opinion. 
And I commented on that post and I said something along the lines of, uh, you know, here are some things that I have learned personally. Here are some resources that have personally been really clear and understandable for me as I've been learning about this myself. Just remember, you know, if something makes you uncomfortable or something is difficult for you to read, consider the message before you discard it just because it's uncomfortable. For me, this was a really difficult process. It was embarrassing. It was really painful to know that I had hurt people and know that I had perpetuated racist beliefs. Uh, It even hurts to talk about it publicly now. It was hard for me to confront that. And it was hard for me to understand that I've likely hurt some people at some point. And uh, someone someone commented on my Facebook comment and tried to tell me that it wasn't difficult or it wasn't uncomfortable. No. And I just thought that was, they must have a very different life experience than I do. In my opinion, the people who have come the furthest realize how far they have left to go. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? The people who believe that there is nothing wrong with them are also the people who have made the least progress personally. So that actually goes back to an old phrase that my dad used to say around this time of year. Freshmen think they know everything. Sophomores know they know nothing. Juniors don't know that they know everything. And seniors know that they know everything. Uh, Is that Dunning-Kruger effect or is that something else? I think it's the Dunning-Kruger effect. Actually, let me Google it right quick. Yeah, it's it's the Dunning-Kruger effect. You're absolutely right about that. There is a lot of really productive, hopefully, talk about systemic change right now. Some huge changes that we might see on a national level and in legal matters that would make life better uh, for people in the United States. But how, how much good are those huge national changes going to do? If people who look within themselves and realize that they have a racist belief or two or 10 or 20 banging around in there, if you don't know how to fix it, because it's it's just as hard to uproot a belief that has become a part of you as it is to identify that belief in the first place. So how do you go about changing that belief? You fi- Say you've figured out what it is. How do you go about changing it? Well, you change that just the way that you change any belief that you want to change. Just like how I you know, stopped believing that it's a sin for me to wear pants or go to a movie. Uh, Monique Melton gave a really good quote in an interview about becoming anti-racist. She said, uh, anytime you want to uproot a belief, you've got to give yourself evidence to ground the belief that you want to hold on to and then collect evidence for that belief. And I thought that was just so accurate. If you know that this belief needs to change and you need to change something that you've believed, you need to start by gathering evidence. So you would read articles and books by people who hold the opposite belief and compare that to what you were taught. Compare your feelings to what you were taught and your feelings to other people's feelings. See how much, for me, what I always did when I was working on actively changing a belief And what I still do is I gather as much evidence as I feel like I can accurately work with without getting overwhelmed. I get as much evidence as I can find. And then I start to compare and then I use logic to uproot that old belief and replace it with a new belief. Yeah. One thing that I have noticed 
um, especially uh, when I was in college, I was a rhetoric and media studies major. So a lot of the, um, a lot of what I had to deal with was trying to create an argument. And I've noticed that a lot of times people will try to, it will be more about winning an argument than it will about figuring out what's right and what's wrong. And that doesn't just go to, you know, political discourse. That doesn't just go to the debate stage or the the courtroom. That goes to yourself, like interpersonally, where you're trying to figure out a way that you can be, not that you can figure out what's right and what's wrong, where you're trying to figure out this is what I believe and I'm going to stand by it even though there's all of this overwhelming evidence against me. And so in spite of all of this evidence, I'm going to try to defeat this cause, which is obviously greater. And there's also a sense of superiority that you get from winning a debate against somebody who is obviously in the right. And I think that a lot of people feel that where they feel, okay, well, I'm right because this is what I believe and I'm good because I'm one of the good guys then they end up arguing just some absolute garbage. I don't know if that, if that went where I was talking. Well, that's, I mean, that's a a feeling I'm very familiar with. You are talking about somebody and this is not, this is not my proudest moment folks, but, but you are talking to someone who once tried to debate creationism uh, against a actual paleontologist. Like an actual like doctor, doctor's degree in paleontology, real scientist. We're going to have an actual, uh, a full episode where we talk about that eventually. <laughs> yeah, we are. But, but I figured that that nice little embarrassing moment would be a good illustration of uh, trying, you know, the, the futility of, of winning for the sake of winning. Yeah. You know, we don't, do we really need to win for the sake of winning? What, what are we really fighting for? If you win the if you win the argument and your position is wrong, you still lose. That's what people need to get. If you win the argument and your position is is uh, is garbage or amoral, you lose because you get to keep that belief that's just wrong and is going to continue to hurt you or other people in the future. Yeah, it's it's time. It's time for people to to be willing to to lose an argument and learn and listen, listen to people who hold different beliefs. Right now, listen to people of color. Listen, just listen, read articles, open your ears, shut your mouth sometimes. And so on that note, um, I think that we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back and switch topics to something much lighter because this episode has been quite heavy and touched on a lot of really deep and personal subjects and a a lot of personal growth and very uplifting, but also very, uh, very heavy. Hey, Gavrielle here. If you enjoy the Leaving Eden podcast, head over to our Facebook group, Eden Exodus, where you can talk to other fans, ask us questions, and share memes. That's facebook.com slash Eden Exodus. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Leaving Eden podcast, and you'll get access to extended and uncensored episodes. You can also support our show by recommending it to your family and your friends. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. And now, back to the show. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Switching gears, last episode, I told you that we were going to have Sadie watch some episodes of Pokemon, and we're going to call this section homework, where basically I give Sadie um, some homework of some cultural things that she may have missed out on. Um, and so the first one that I thought of to talk about was Pokemon. And I'm going to start by by going uh, by maybe explaining to her a little bit uh, what the cultural impact of Pokemon was. Pokemon is a video game, TV show, trading card franchise uh, was invented by a guy named Satoshi Tajari in Japan. So what was that like for you as a kid? Was that was Pokemon just the biggest thing? Oh, Pokemon was huge. And we're exactly the same age. We're literally three months apart. We were both born in 1993. We're both uh, 27 at the point of, of recording this podcast. When I was a kid, um, the f- my first real exposure to Pokemon was my brother hated it. My brother hated Pokemon. He hated Pokemon. When I was maybe six, I want to say I was six, my friend's mom, she took me and her, me and my friend, to see the Pokemon, the first movie. Now, I'd never seen the cartoon show before, but I, I went and I saw the Pokemon first movie with my friend. Like, after that, I was like, yes, this is it. And so, like, I I got... She, she dropped me off at home, and I was like, Mom, I want Pokemon cards. So, my mom took uh, took me to the store. She took me to Things from Another World, and which was our, our comic book store, and I bought starter pack of Pokemon cards, and I had... My best Pokemon card was Machamp. I had a Machamp card and then, you know, I'd get the other packs. But, you know, you would have friends who would have like, oh, I've got the the holographic Mewtwo and the card was in Japanese. And like, if you had that, you were it. Like, you were the coolest kid in school. They would also, there was also talk where they would ban Pokemon cards from schools. Like, you couldn't have Pokemon cards at schools and play them at recess because that's all we wanted to do was play with Pokemon cards at recess. So I heard that was because it was like a status symbol thing because some people couldn't afford like multiple packs of them. Sort of, but also I think it had to do with they didn't want people to be doing like anything to be resembling gambling. And this was in the 90s. Well, Pogs got banned five years before that, right? Because it was like a gambling thing. I don't know about that, but like in the 90s, I guess... Obviously, it's nothing compared to what Sadie is talking about with her upbringing. But I think in the 90s, there was a lot of like moral panic about like, oh, what's going on with our children? What are our children being exposed to? And Pokemon cards were like, oh, this could be a a gateway into gambling. 
Oh, that's it? <laughs> yeah. I think that was one of the main things. Um, but like when I was a kid, um, we didn't have cable um, because my family was, oh, we're healthy. And so we don't need to watch that much TV. And I didn't have video games at this point. Um, so I didn't get to play the Pokemon video game. So all I had was the cards. But, you know, I I would go over to my friend's house and watch the TV show because I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And the theme song was like the coolest thing in the world. And all like the Pokemon fights were really awesome. But basically what I had um, Sadie do, I was like, OK, we're going to go. We're going to have you watch the first uh, five or six episodes of the Pokemon Indigo League, which is the first season, which was the season that I grew up with. Okay, but you did not tell me it was Indigo League I was supposed to be watching. So I just put Pokemon into my Netflix search bar and I watched something completely different for an episode or two before I texted you and said, what's up with this? Yeah, because you didn't know what was going on, but that's fine. Um, but we got you We got you in, so you watched the... Well, this is a lesson that you need to specify. <laughs> Yeah, I just assumed everyone knew what Pokemon was. I was not specific. The entire point of this show is that I don't know what things are. Yeah, so I had her go and watch um, five or six episodes of Pokemon Indigo League. I got to six. You got to six. Okay. First of all, what did the cult have to say about Pokemon? So... Uh, I think a common theme will be that the IFB tends to fall for anything that might potentially end up on Snopes.com. Just generally, any conspiracy theory and any theory that was born out of the satanic panic. So backmasking, elaborate theories about the Catholic Church, uh, anything that came from anything that would be on Snopes. And one of those things is theories that Pokemon is a demonic game. So it supposedly teaches children and trains children how to cast spells and summon demons. Like when you apparently like you play a card, I don't know, but you are you say certain words and that might be like a spell that you're casting or a demon that you're summoning. Pikachu, use Thundershock attack. That's a spell. Yeah, like that's a spell. <laughs> And then some Pokemon have a similarity to demons named in the Lesser Key of Solomon, which, I mean, how many Pokemon are there? There are 150 in the show I watched, and I know there's more. Originally, there is 151, and now there's thousands. I can't keep track of all of them. Well, out of all those designs, it's probably, you know, likely that some of them look like the demons in the Lesser Key of Solomon, because I think there's 76 demons drawn out in there so i just think with that many data points there's likely to be some kind of similarity somewhere there'll be some overlap Uh, the other main problem that that ifb people have with pokemon is the idea of evolution uh like i've said they don't believe in evolution at all they believe that god created the world six thousand years ago exactly the way that it is right now we're just going to brush over the fact that evolution (laughs) in pokemon is nothing resembling evolution in real life doesn't matter it's the word evolution it's evil that takes generations and generations and generations it doesn't matter it's got the word evolution whereas in pokemon you know you get your pokemon to a high enough level and they just like start glowing and then they turn into a different pokemon that's like a a evolved have you seen any pokemons evolve yet yes the the caterpillar bug guy yeah caterpie so you saw caterpie um get a shell I was really excited. I was like, oh my gosh, it's evolving. It's doing it. 
So basically, so what did what did you think of the cartoon itself? Like, what did you think of the theme song? That was the first thing I want to know because you're a metalhead. You like you like a good rock song. Like, what what did you think of that theme song? I don't know if this is gonna be controversial or not, but I actually like the rap at the end a lot better. Okay, the polka rap is a great song. Like, I was just the- like so into that because like all like the. Yeah, that was great. Top 50 all-time songs. Um, so I'm not going to fault you for enjoying the poker rap. But I mean, when, in my childhood, you've got to understand, in my childhood, that song was the song. You know, that song slapped so hard. See, that, it's it's really funny. That's another problem that IFBs had with Pokemon, because the best that ever was was Jesus. And how dare you compare yourself? Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I know it's crazy. You, you heard it here first. Ash Ketchum is uh looking to supersede jesus as the messiah well right which makes him the antichrist yeah um yeah (laughs) so so what did you think what did you think of the characters because we see in the first episode ash wakes up and he goes to professor oak to get his his pokemon because it's his birthday but he was running late yeah he was running late and he gets pikachu and pikachu doesn't like to go in the pokeball and he has to learn but i love pikachu yeah see the character they're so cute he is so cute they get less cute as time goes on i think eventually they ended up with like an ice cream pokemon um like years and years and years later after they like exhausted many ideas there's a a ice cream pokemon called vanillish Yeah, I I, th- I just I thought Pikachu not, yeah. was really cute. He kind of reminds me of my cat. Yeah, Pikachu is Pikachu is a cutie for sure. Squirtle's a cutie. Charmander, I have not Bulbasaur, met those Squirtle are all... yet. I don't think. Oh, you'll meet Squirtle. Squirtle is Squirtle is uh, uh, one of the cutest Pokemon. I will tell you, it feels so awkward to me to like try to discuss the names of Pokemon because it's not words that have ever come out of my mouth before. And when those words have never come out of your mouth before, it's a little weird to try to say them. To everyone else, like to people of my generation, it's like saying, oh, Chewbacca, or like saying, oh, uh, you know, any character I from mean, any fictional I mean, I can pronounce thing. every yeah. Star Trek name. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I can tell you all about, you know, T'Pol and T'Pring and Tuvok and all those people. Right. So it, it's just like that. Um you know, so how did you how did you feel like there's there's a 10 year old, I guess, maybe, you know, the subject of this episode, we talked about you going off on your own on like an adventure to try to save the world. You know, that's kind of what Ash is doing. But instead of saving everyone's soul at, at at 10 years old, he's going out to become a Pokemon master and defeat Team Rocket. I mean, he did seem a little young to be going off on his own. And I, I felt like he was what is the, the redheaded girl's name? Is that Misty? That's Misty. I thought he was really mean to her, to be honest. He and then was I remembered, really oh, her. he's a he's a child. He's That's ten. What children do. Yeah, kids are all mean to each other. I yeah, because you know, and this was a show that was marketed to children, so you know, it doesn't really have to make sense. It just has to be like. Yeah, I found it cute and charming. I do have a question. I want to know. Uh, how the so the Pokemon are bigger than the Pokeballs, and then sometimes the Pokeballs are like sometimes they're big, like when he throws them, and sometimes they're small when they're like on his belt loop or whatever. How does that work? How do they fit? How does how does the Pokemon fit Oof. into that little ball? Is there a science fiction thing here, or is it just a kids show? It's a science fiction thing, probably where they I I don't know you I you'd have to ask somebody else about that. I think it's. Yeah, I just, I just, that was one thing. I was like, how is this supposed to work? The long answer is there's an explanation for it, but I don't have it. The shorter answer is I don't know. No, that's um, fine. 
Yeah. Um, okay, so I wanted to ask, what did you think of Team Rocket? I hate them. You hate Team Rocket. I hate them. They're so mean. They are so mean. I hate them so much. But they're they're good baddies, right? They're they're they're, they're excellent villains, baddies. yes. And I, I thought it was kind of refreshing. A lot of kids shows show your protagonist going up against an adult villain. So either your protagonist is like Batman, who is an adult going up against adult vic- villains, or you know, in um, you know, like Little Orphan Annie or other shows about child protagonists, you see the child protagonist going up against a adult villain. I thought it was really kind of cool to have a child protagonist going up against a child villains. Are you talking about um, Team Rocket? Are you talking about they're adults? They're not they're adults. adults. They're adults following around a ten-year-old. How are they adults? They look like they're like they look like so. Ash is ten. They yeah, look Ash like they're 10. like fourteen. No, Misty is fourteen. What? Team Rocket is Team Rocket is older. What? Like Team Rocket? Yeah, it's it's Why anime. Why are these adults so, picking on this little boy? That's so mean. It it makes no now sense. Now I hate them twice as much. You hate them twice as much now. They're trying to steal what? his Pikachu. They're like, trying what to. What the hell? They're they're adults. They're following around a ten year old to try and steal his pet. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. But yeah. I think um. So you told me to watch six episodes. Yeah, because in episode five, that's when Brock, Brock shows, shows up. up. Yeah, I think that I will watch more episodes okay. when my husband isn't looking. <laughs> We have a winner then. We yeah, have a like I think I will continue to possibly watch that like when what I need to remind you of or not remind you of what I need to prepare you for is that if you decide to binge watch a bunch of episodes of Pokemon, Team Rocket will get very annoying because they show up in every episode. Everyone, to, huh? Yeah, like mm. every episode and try to ruin things for Ash. You know, I've really just enjoyed, you know, like like you said, we're recording at a pretty interesting and stressful time to be alive. It is a bit escapist, isn't it? I have I honestly really just enjoyed the like sugary sweet. Like this is innocent. This is a kid's show and it's not boring because I've, I've never seen this before. This is like a, a it's very fresh and new for me. So I really think that there's a good chance of me just watching an episode or two a day for a while. And so the th- and like the themes of the show are, you know, friendship, hard work, determination, compassion, loyalty and suffering for something that's greater than yourself yeah but it's not done so at some point okay so i will tell you what at some point after you've given me a certain amount of homework i might give you some homework have you ever seen veggie tales i have seen veggie tales okay um you know the the christian or christian approved tv shows that i grew up with as a kid we're just really blatant about how those exact same values, you know, you said friendship and compassion and loyalty, those those same values were portrayed, but it was in a much more heavy-handed way. And I think seeing it in this very, very light and fluffy way where the the morals of the story aren't quite as obvious or as in your face, I think that was refreshing and fun for me. Yeah. You know, Pokemon as... You know, because because parents will, at least when I was a kid, parents a lot of them hated it because they're just like, oh well, they're making animals fight each other and they're, 
you know, but there's the the good people and the bad people and the bad guys are cruel to their Pokemon and the good people, they fight with their Pokemon, but it's also like training with their Pokemon. Like it's like they're um, and not everybody decides that they want to have a Pokemon and go into battle with the Pokemon. Right. You know, some people are just like, oh, I'm just a guy that like I have a business where I I don't know, like I have a farm or something and somehow they'll use the they're like a, a earth Pokemon ground type Pokemon or something to help them farm, you know, to they'll have like a diglet to help them, you know, irrigate the the soil. So it's just like, oh, we're living in harmony with these animals and trying to be friendly with them. And then you have other people who are like, I'm going to bend them to my will and try to use them to conquer the world. And those people are always bad. Those people are Team Rocket. And then the good guys are everyone who's not Team Rocket. I, I really found it just just kind of cute and adorable and it reminded me weirdly of the first time i listened to kiss uh and i'll tell you why okay that's that's a a bit of a no i promise there's a connection here so pokemon and kiss the band are things that i were told was told were horribly demonic and that the demonic connections and the horrible just like clear tributes to Satan that were in Pokemon or in Kiss Music should be obvious to anyone. And the way that that proof was showed to me of those things, it did seem obvious to me at the time. So, I mean, and I I really am a metalhead, so I do listen to some bands that are actually satanic now. But when when I first listened to Kiss, I expected to hear and see what I had been told to expect, which was actual like satanic imagery. Because you look at them and you're like, oh man, these guys, they have all that face makeup. They look like demons. They can't be up to anything good. Like, look at... And that's what I was told to expect. And then I listened to Kiss and it's all just like, it's like the Beach Boys with more guitar. (laughs) It's like, I want to rock and roll all night and party every day. It's it's all innuendo. It's just silly boy stuff. Yeah. And it's cute. A couple of, uh, there are a couple Kiss songs. I wouldn't say they're my favorite band of all time, but there are a couple that are in my favorite songs of all time. I sure know something. One of my, one of the best songs. So it's a bit funny that there's such, like, there's such a difference in the way that Kiss looks and the way that Kiss sounds. I know. And it, it surprised me. And Pokemon was the same way. You know, I thought that watching it from a more, detached viewpoint i would be able to see oh that's what they had a problem with oh that's what they had a problem with but really the only thing i was able to pick out was was the word evolution i wasn't even able to pick out and they're not even using that word right right. like i wasn't even able to put my finger on what people would have a problem with it just seems so just just fresh and cute and fun so i really enjoyed that so thank you for suggesting that okay well next time i'm not going to give you a tv show to watch i'm going to give you a movie to watch a whole movie. A whole movie, but it's a classic. Okay. I'm going to give you I don't know if you've seen this. It's not a kid it's not a children's cartoon. It is the movie Clueless. I actually have not seen that. You've not seen this movie. It's a great movie. It's about a lawyer who's blonde. That's legally oh, blonde. Turn. Okay, no, I, I got no idea. No, Clueless is a is a really fun like a, a teen high school movie and it's loosely based on the plot of emma by jane austen which is one of my oh, favorite books well of all i've time. read yeah. emma you've read emma 
So yeah. you can watch Clueless now. And Clueless is like, a, a, I guess, I don't know what year it came out. Probably like the 90s. I want to say like mid to late 90s. But it's like a mid to late 90s version of Emma by Jane Austen. Well, it's like how... Um I think the movie 10 Things I Hate About You is like a Shakespeare play. It's a retelling of a Shakespeare play, right? It's like that? Yeah, it's it's just like that. Oh, okay. Well, I will probably enjoy that then. I'm sure I'm sure you'll love it. It's a fun movie. It's a good movie. Okay. Well, I will I'll check that out and I'll let you know what I think next time. All right. And man, this has been a long episode. This has been a good episode, but it's been a long episode. Um and so we're going to end it here. Um once again, my name is Gavriel Hakoan. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Gavriel Hakoan, G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N, also on Facebook. Make sure that you follow our podcast on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Um, on Facebook, uh, on Facebook, it's Leaving Eden Podcast. Instagram, it's at Leaving Eden Podcast. And on Twitter, it is at Leaving Eden Pod. Um, Sadie, if you want to plug your social media. Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music or on Twitter at Hell Yeah Sadie. All right. And until next time, um, we just uh, want to say thank you for listening to this podcast. And we hope that you will uh, subscribe and yeah. Yeah. No. Thank you. Okay. Thank okay. you I so much it. for listening. Uh, I have. Uh, I think we're gonna do some funny stories next time. Yeah. Next episode is going to be much lighter in content than this one. But thank you so much for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.